listening to the Bible 126 show. Father, we just praise you for who you are. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity. We pray, Father, through your Holy Spirit, you'd open your word to our lives and our lives to your word, that through all of this, that we might come to know you better, that we might grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Okay, we are in session two in our exploration of the book of Deuteronomy, and we'll be covering chapters three and four in this session. Deuteronomy chapter three. And we turned and went up... Now, as you may recall in chapter 1, Moses is giving a sermon summarizing their history near the end of the 40-year period. He's recounting a lot of history, and, and so he's describing it in present tense as it's happening, but he's actually reflecting back. And they, what they've gone after they've wandered in the wilderness somewhat, they've gone up east of the Jordan going north through Edom, through Moab, and now through to Bashan, which we would consider like the Golan Heights area. We turned and went up the way of Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Edrai. They have just defeated Sihon. There's two major kings that are going to count for most of the remnant of the Rephaim, the residual Nephilim, if you will. And by the way, during the break, there were some questions about this, so there isn't any confusion. The Nephilim were the hybrid offspring of fallen angels and the women that gave rise to the flood. And the Nephilim at that time were disposed of through the flood. And the angels that had participated in that were put in a special judgment. Second Peter 2 and Jude talk about that. But in Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, it was also, this also occurred after that. So apparently, we don't have any record of it, but apparently after the flood there were some other fallen angels that indulged in the same kind of thing to develop a form of Nephilim, fallen ones, that are called Anakim, Rephaim, by several different tribal names, that populated that region. Satan's apparent intent was to thwart God's plan and create a minefield for the, to, to obstruct God's program for the descendants of Abraham. Let's move on here, though. So now we're moving up, and there's two primary kings. Sihon, we disposed of him at the last part of the last chapter, and now we have this guy Og, the king of Bashan. He came out against us, he and all his people, to battle in the dry. And the Lord said unto me, Fear him not, for I will deliver him and all his people and his land into thy hand. And thou shalt do unto him as thou didst unto Sihon, the king of the Amorites, which dwelt at Hezbon. Here is a map to give you some geography here. Um, just to give you a rough feeling here. We've got uh, Sihon. Further south is Moab. And then further north is is, is the Bashan, and Andrai is about 30 miles just east of the, t- the southern tip of uh, the Sea of Galilee, if you will, just to give you a rough picture of all of this. Okay, the king of the Amorites, that was Sion, the guy we just dealt with. He had, the, he had the country east of the Jordan from Arnon to the Jabbok, about 1,500 square miles. Now, he was defeated, Sion, his sons, and all his people smitten with a sword. His walled towns were captured, and the entire country of the Amorites was taken possession by the Israelites. This occurred at the end of the last chapter, just by way of review. Og, the king of the giants, he was the Amorite king of Bashan, ruling about 60 cities and about 3,000 square miles, about twice the area of Sion. He was of a different race, we understand, of the remnant of the giants, the Rephaim before the Amorites came, a precedent group. The Amorites, by intermarriage with the Rephaim, were, quote, 
in height like that of the cedars and strong as the oaks, according to Amos 2.9. It's one of these poetical allusions to these people. He's going to perish with all his people in the dry, and Israel will take his land. So Og, the king of the giants. But I want you to understand that the region of Bashan is a region associated with these strange goings-on, and I think it has echoes even to this day. Let's move on, verse 3. So the Lord our God delivered into our hands Og, also the king of Bashan, and all his people, and we smote him until none was left to him remaining. We took all his cities at that time. There was not a city which, he, which we took not from them. Three score cities, all the region of Argob, the king of Og in Bashan. Now, they came across this rock barrier Argob. It's, a barrier about, uh, it's a, like a basalt island there. It's, it's about 60 miles by 20 miles, rising abruptly 30 feet above the, the general terrain, providing a, a very difficult get-to, but that gave it security. That was his main holdout, if you will. And if he, if he had stayed in there, it's unlikely Israel could have dislodged him. But he was foolish enough to come out, and they nailed him, and they got him, and, and so on. So we don't have to get into all that, I guess. All these cities were fenced with high walls, gates, and bars inside, unwalled towns, a great many inside this area. We ought to destroy them as we did under Sihon, the king of Heshbon, utterly destroying the men, women, and children of every city. But all the cattle and the spoil of the cities, we took a prey to ourselves. And so, again, it's just like Sihon, they took... They took advantage of it. And the trust of the soldiers in the Word of God contrasts with their unbelieving forebears that have passed away in the wilderness. These guys are trusting God and, and so forth. And uh, so we'll talk more about, about, the, about the destruction of all these people when we get to chapter 7. We'll deal with that as a topic. And we took at that time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites the land that was on this side of the Jordan from the river of Arnon to Mount Hermon. Verses uh, 8 through 11 in this area really summarize the conquest of the, the uh, territory by these tr- two Transjordan kings, Sihon and Og. And uh, so the Israelites needed them uh, uh, as, as encouragement, if you will, and reminders of God's past faithfulness. You can imagine how they felt. They had a real victory and were encouraged. And uh, so this uh, clearly was an you know, encouraging victory. In which Hermon, the Sidonians, called Syrian, and the Amorites called Shinir. All the cities of the plain, and all the Gilead, and all Bashan, unto Salka, and Endrai, the cities of freedom of Og and Bashan. And only the Og, the king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of the giants. Behold, his bedstead was a bedstead of iron. Is it not in Rabah of the children of Ammon? Nine cubits was the length thereof, and four cubits the breadth of it, after the cubit of a man. Now, a cubit is the elbow to the fingertip. It's nominally about 18 inches, give or take a few, depending on what authority you look at. But you're talking something, a bed that's six feet wide, not long, wide, and nine, or excuse me, 13 and a half feet long, nine cubits. Do the math. So, uh, uh, now there are some scholars that don't quite buy into all this, and they say, well, that was probably not his bed, it was really a sarcophagus, it was just a large coffin. Well, uh, you know, it uh, takes more imagination to be a disbeliever than, and, you know, we'll move on. Um, there is, as you go up to the Galan Heights, there is, there are, I should say, some monuments that have never been excavated. And this is an aerial photograph of one called the Gilgal Rephaim, Gilgal being a circle of the Rephaim. And um, my wife and I had the privilege with a friend to get a 4x4 and head up into that region. Um, at the time, there were artillery shells landing about a thousand yards away. They were training. It wasn't after us that we were training, but still, it was kind of, kind of exciting. Um, 
but uh, it's interesting that this has never been excavated. And uh, it, uh, it's, there are five circles that are made of 20-ton stones, about 155 meters in diameter. It's dated to about 3000 B.C. It's built on a flat plateau. You can only see what it, how it's really organized from the air. That's why I got that area photograph. It's about 10 miles from uh, Ashtaroth Karnim. Uh, it's, uh, uh, it, 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 there's allusions to Genesis 14, Joshua 12, and 1 Chronicles 6. There's another one less distinct, the Bataya ruins, which also has not been excavated, that, go, that date back to uh, you know, several thousand B.C. So these are all remnants of the Rephaim, these strange tribes that uh, populated the region. So in the early, early history. Now, this issue of the bulls of Bashan, I just want to leave you with something to puzzle. If you've done some homework in demonology, you do know that there's a strange territorial aspect to demon behavior. We notice that by the very fact that the areas of the Rephim weren't defeated are still troubled to this day. You know, there's, a, there's some interesting issues. So there's a strange phrase that occurs apparently from Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross. If you've studied Psalm 22, you've discovered that it reads as if it's dictated first person singular as he hung on the cross. He looks down and even quotes what people are saying, and it's just an incredibly dramatic portrayal of Jesus and hung on the cross. I commend it to your study. I won't take the time here to develop that because we have to keep moving here, but I encourage you just to read the psalm. It talks about his hands and feet being pierced, which is remarkable because that was 700 years before crucifixion was invented. It was invented by the Persians in about 100 B.C. and adopted widely by the Romans, of course, but this is, now, this is 800 years, this is 800 B.C. This is the psalms that this occurs, and yet described it so vividly. In fact, there's articles in medical journals. Descri- anyway, we'll move on. But there's one phrase in Psalm 22. It talks about my, not a bone being broken, they pierced my hands and my feet. He goes through all that stuff. There's one phrase in there in verse 12 where Jesus apparently says that many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. Now it happens that that area, the Bashan area, the Golan Heights, is an area for cattle raising. So many people presume that this somehow is just an idiom of you know, the bulls of Bashan is, a, is just a, a, a term for a very big bull, maybe, or something. There, people have conjectures. But you see, what you've got to do with all these things, you've got to look at it in the Hebrew. That's what it's written in the first place, right? And the word that is abir, which is translated bull, actually means the mighty ones. It's used of valiant people, men, angels, sometimes of animals, enemies, of princes. So it's not just bull like a cattle type of bull. It's a broader term than that. Some kind of mighty enemy. The bulls of Bashan have encompassed me round. I'm beginning to suspect that what that is an allusion to are the demons around the cross. Not happy with what's going on because their victory is being assured by, that, by God's master plan. The real import of this verse obviously has to take its significance from really understanding what's really been going on in Bashan and who Og, the king of Bashan, really was and so forth. And I'll leave you that, to that to study out on your own. Let's just move on. Verse 12. And this land which he possessed at that time from Ar, which is by the river Arnon, half Mount Gilead and the cities thereof, gave I unto the Reubenites and to the Gadites. You remember there are two and a half tribes that chose to remain east of the Jordan. Reuben, Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh. Remember that? Well, that's what he's going to start talking to you about here. Uh, um, I gave the, uh, this particular I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites. And the rest of Gilead and all of Bashan, being the kingdom of Og, 
gave I unto the half-tribe of Manasseh, all the region of Argob with all the Bashan, which was called, get this, the land of the giants. So while these were around everywhere, somehow this region is particularly identified as the land of the Rephaim, or the giants, the walking dead. Jair, the son of Manasseh, took all the country of Argob and the coasts of Geshuri and the Makathe and, and called, called them after his own name, Bashan Havoth the Jair, unto this day. And I gave Gilead and Amikir. So he's dividing the property among those warriors that were particularly outstanding. Jair was a descendant of Manasseh. He was singled out for special mention uh, here and because of his courage in capturing the whole region of Argob and Bashan. And that's uh, all in Numbers 32, among other places. And uh, so the result, the area is named after him. And likewise, Makir, that he's the sub-tribe of, the, of Manasseh, was given to the rest of Gilead because they had conquered that territory. This is Numbers again. 32 is the, is the uh, this is echoing. And unto the Reubenites and the Gadites I gave from Gilead even unto the river Arnon half the valley and the border even unto the river Jabbok, which is the border of the children of Ammon, and the plain also in the Jordan and the coast thereof, and Kinnereth. Kinnereth is the early name for the, what we call the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Kinnereth is a harp, a heart-shaped thing. So, Or no, Gennesaret, I guess. Anyway, the point is, even unto the sea of the plain, even the salt sea under Ashdod, Pisgah, eastward. And I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God hath given you this land to possess it. Ye shall pass over armed before your brethren of the children of Israel, all that are meat for the war. But your wives and your little ones and your cattle, for I know that ye have much cattle, shall abide in your cities which I have given you. In other words, okay, guys, you can stay here on the east of Jordan, but I'm still counting on you. When we conquer the land, your warriors have to join the nation. When we fight after that seven-year campaign under Joshua, we conquer the land, then you can go home. You can leave your wives and children at home, the young ones, but he's, kind of, he's giving them a concession to, they, they like the looks of this land, so they'd like to have this, this high ground called what we call the Golan Heights. But the cost of that, you've got, you, still, you can't get out of your military duty, you've got to join the nation in its wars, conquering the land under Joshua. That'll go on for seven years, it turns out. But when that's all accomplished, then you can go home and that land's yours. Okay, that's the deal. And they honor that deal, they do that. Probably a mistake, by the way, because they picked that out early. Uh, but it's also the first area to be conquered by the Assyrians because they were always separated. They were always east of the Jordan. There was, there, there's a lot of misunderstandings that occur and things, but uh, they get watered over, but still, anyway, okay. Until the Lord have given rest unto your brethren as well as unto you, and until they also possess the land which the Lord your God hath given them beyond the Jordan, and then shall you return every man unto his possession which I have given you. So that's the deal. And I commanded Joshua at that time, saying, Thine eyes have seen all that the Lord your God hath done unto these two kings, so shall the Lord do unto all the kingdoms whither thou passest. So a lot of what's going on here with, with uh, Sihon and Og, in effect, is not encouraging the troops in general. It's also strengthening the, re, the, the resolve of Joshua, who's going to take Moses' place. And so, uh, so this, by, by Moses encouraging Joshua, he's also obeying God's command, because that's what God told Moses to do, is to encourage Joshua, and he's doing that. And uh, so forth, because uh, he's, he's obviously distinguished himself. Ye shall not fear them, for the Lord your God, he shall fight for you. And I besought the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, thou hast begun to show thy servant thy greatness and thy mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or in earth that can do according to thy works and according to thy might? No kidding. You know, it's, uh, it's interesting. God had told Moses that he's not going to enter the land. But now with all this encouragement, you sort of get the impression that Moses is thinking that, gee, maybe he's changed his mind. 
You know, God can do anything. I mean, look at what he's doing here. Just maybe, see. And uh, you have begun to show your servant the great, your greatness. Well, um, the, uh, this, this probably refers to God's omnipotence in, in defeating Sihon and Og. But um, it's probably allusion to the more recent events rather than looking back 40 years to the Exodus. And so Moses may be thinking that, gee, maybe there's a, a change of heart. Maybe the Lord will let me, you know, out of the penalty box. No, he doesn't, by the way. But the Lord was wroth with me for your sakes, and he would not hear me. <laughs> well, what do you mean he's not hearing you? What's implied in these, in these uh, praises is that he's hoping that God will change his mind about him entering the land. But you wouldn't, and he would not hear me. And the Lord said unto me, Let it suffice thee. Speak no more unto me of this matter. You know, I like that. Because the, the, the Hebrew sentence, by the way, implies that Moses had kept asking God for permission. And uh, God became furious. That's an intensive firm of a bar. And uh, the NIV uses the term angry. It's an even a stronger term. Um, so, on the one hand, you get the impression that Moses was trying and he got turned down. But it tells you something else. You do get the impression there's an intimacy between him and the Lord. He's questioning the Lord. And enough already. I'm, don't, don't bring it up again. On the one hand, it's a put down. On the other hand, it also speaks to the relationship they had. It was face to face. It was, you know, together. There are some passages in the scripture, some with Moses, some with Abraham, which you almost have to uh, read with a New York accent. <laughs> you know, there's a certain chutzpah involved, you know. How often the most say, I didn't ask for this job, you gave me these people. You know, you could just, and Abraham in Genesis uh, 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 18, you know, um, or in 19, um, what if there's, you know, 10 righteous, or, you know, 30 righteous. You know, he negotiates, even to the point of pushing his luck right down to the end. And uh, you almost have to see those scenes with a, with a real ethnic coloration to really get the flavor of it. And, and Moses is the same way. He's just, he's, he, both Abraham and Moses are very Jewish. And I'm not trying to be uh, flippant or anything. It, it, it's, just, it's just interesting. Anyway, but here God says, enough already, you know. Let it suffice thee, speak no more unto me of this matter. Which reminds me of something else, you know. I can remember uh, Nan and I were attending a, a live presentation in London, I think it was, of uh, Fiddler on the Roof and during the intermission. A couple in front of us turned to us and says, you know, my husband and I are raised in a Jewish home and we have a tough time following the humor of this musical. And uh, how can you follow this? You're not Jewish, are you? Because Nan and I were there with our two little blonde-headed kids. And, uh, and, and just, you know, we didn't look through it. She said, you're not Jewish, are you? And the Lord says, no, but the God we worship is. See? And, and, and uh, uh, it's interesting to remember, as we talk about Jewish things, our Messiah is a Jewish Messiah. He's the king of Israel. You know, he's the king of the Jews. So you get, we need to remember that, among other things. Anyway, anyway, going on here, get thee up unto the top of Pisgah. Lift up thine eyes eastward, or westward, northward, southward, and eastward. And behold it with thine eyes, for thou shalt not go over this Jordan. So in other words, God's saying, get up on the hill, look in all directions, that's great, get a good look, because that's it, buddy. <laughs> you know, you're not going across the Jordan. And, uh, but charge Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him, for he shall go over before this people, and he shall cause them to inherit the land which thou shalt see. And we abode in the valley over and against Beth Peor. And uh, now, 
Beth Peor is a, uh, 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 Moses couldn't lead the people. And so God reminded him of his responsibility to get Joshua ready for all this. And Joshua's succession is going to be a major theme throughout the book of Deuteronomy. This is the third time it's been mentioned in only three chapters, by the way. So that ends that chapter. Let's go to chapter 4. We're making good time on this one. Now therefore hearken, O Israel, unto the statutes and unto the judgments which I teach you to do them, that ye may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord, the God of our, your fathers, there's that phrase again, uh, giveth you. See, the words now therefore hearken. They introduce the practical conclusion. See, Moses has been recounting all this is old news to them. They've just lived it. He's, he's recounting history. This isn't the first time. All this is, if you're at this point in Deuteronomy, you've read about all this in earlier cha- uh, chapters of the Torah. Moses is just recounting all this. Why? To lead to practical conclusions. You and I want to be alert all the way through this book. What are the practical conclusions for you and I? We have to be able to answer the so what questions. Okay, that's interesting. What's that got to do with me? Be alert to that, because that's why it's here. It is here for you and I. Paul has said in Romans 15, 4, Whatsoever things are written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. So every detail in the Torah, even in Leviticus, as you probably experienced if you went through it with us, is there for you and, you and I. Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it. I wish some of our seminaries would pay attention to that verse. Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye, may be, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. The second verse of chapter 4. It ought to be put on a plaque in every seminary. All the way through here, the emphasis is going to be our responsibility to be obedient. Now, statutes, decrees in the NIV, are, uh, are rules of conduct, statutory laws, which are mutable. Judgments, which are called laws in the NIV here, are uh, may refer to case laws, decisions handed down by the elders, by God's correction, and so forth. We're not going to split hairs about what makes statutes and judgments. Uh, these things are technically different, but they have the same impact and effect. Okay. Okay, verse 3. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did because of Baal Peor, and for all the men that follow Baal Peor, and the Lord thy God hath destroyed them from among you. Now, what happened to Baal Peor, you need to understand, um, because it's an illustration from Israel's own history that their lives, their very lives, depend on obeying God's law. At Baal Peor, the, all the Israelites that entered into physical and spiritual adultery with the Moabites um, were uh, put to death by the sword or died in a plague. 24,000 died in that plague. And uh, on the other hand, those that uh, held fast to the Lord, they lived. This is all Numbers 25. It's also mentioned in Psalm 106 and Hosea 9. And the reason I mention it here, another reason, it's the key to understanding Revelation chapter 2, uh, the letter to Pergamos, because it speaks of the doctrine of Balaam. Balaam was a prophet that was hired by Balak, the adversary king, and uh, he didn't curse Israel like the king paid him to do. He wouldn't do that. But he apparently did tip off the king that the way to get, that as long as God is with Israel, you can't beat him. But the way you get God to turn on Israel is to get Israel to sin. The way you get Israel to sin is to have your sexiest girls go along the fringes of their land and mix with the guys, and pretty soon there'll be, uh, be adultery and fornication and also spiritual fornication, and uh, then God will turn against them and you win. And so they did that. Well, uh, God uh, 
um, dealt with that. And you need to understand that background, not just because the lesson's in it tr- intrinsically, but you really won't understand the letter to Pergamos and what that was all about, unless you understand the whole episode with Baal and Balak and all that, which all happened in Baal Peor. But in any case, the point is, obedience there, the point to Israel here, the obedience there was a matter of life and death. You didn't get slapped on the wrist. You didn't get, you know, put in a, in a, 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 a 100-year life imprisonment or something, some other horrible thing. They, it, was, it was death. Obedience was a matter of life and death to Israel, and it should be to you and I too. But ye, did that, but ye that did cleave unto the Lord your God are alive, every one of you, this day. That's, imp- that's an impressive conclusion to that argument. Those that were hearing him were there because they were faithful. Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord that my God commanded me, that ye should do so in the land, whither ye go to possess it. See, one of the purposes of the laws was to give them a full life as they obeyed. Another purpose of the laws here also revealed to make Israel morally and spiritually unique among the nations, draw other nations into an awareness of the living God. Israel was not distinguished from other nations by its natural resources, its wealth, or military might, but by her moral skill and close relationship to God. That was her uniqueness, and that's what God wanted to manifest before all the nations of the world. That was, her, that was their mission, and that would come uh, from obedience to God's purposes. So he goes up, Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of other nations which shall hear all these statutes and say, Surely this is a great nation, is a wise and understanding people. That was God's purpose. They were to be a beacon in a dark world. For what nation is there so great, who hath God so nigh unto them, as the Lord our God is in all things, that we call upon him for? See, if, if, if Israel would obey the law, she would be the envy of all the nations in the world. They would see her as wise and understanding, have a God that is near her and that she possesses righteous decrees and laws. What nation is there so great that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law which I have set before you this day? See, the distinguishing resource of Israel was the law. It wasn't natural resources. Israel's not known for the oil refineries that litter her land. She is getting known to be one of the, I think she's the second largest fruit exporter in the entire world, a little tiny country that you know, that's a third the size of San Bernardino County. But the real asset of Israel, whether they realize it or not, is the law. But to make it a resource, they've got to obey it to manifest it. Only take heed of thyself and keep thy soul diligently, lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen, unless they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life. But teach them thy sons and thy son's son. Now there's a solemn admonition here to be careful to watch it implies that they constantly face the danger of falling into sin, which would bring them to the brink of annihilation as a nation. And uh, their sin, of course, was idolatry. The nation would become idolatrous in two related ways. The depravity of the human mind is part of it. The depravity of the human mind seeks idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry, Paul tells us. But the other thing, that uh, other threat to them is forgetfulness. There's a whole emphasis in the book of Deuteronomy to parents. Again and again and again, you'll discover that the the Torah, Deuteronomy in particular, hammers away that the duty of teaching the kids are the parents, not not the church, 
Not the schools. Their, their influence is limited. The parents are the key. Deuteronomy 9 and 10 are going to hammer that away and, and uh, all the way through. So, And uh, the other thing it hammers away uh, is not forgetting. Much of what's in Deuteronomy you already know, but Moses' main burden is that you don't forget it, that you continue to recall it, apply it and, and in your life. Especially the day that thou stoodest before the Lord thy God in Horeb, when the Lord said unto me, Gather me the people together, and I will make them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days that they shall live upon the earth, and that they, shall, that they may teach their children. He came near and stood under the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire into the midst of heaven, with darkness and clouds and thick darkness. You know, it's interesting. All the people that are listening to Moses are the children of the parents that died for failing to do this. You think that should, that should come home. See? The Lord spake unto you out of the midst of the fire, and ye heard the voice of the words, but saw no similitude, only ye heard a voice. In other words, they heard, they heard the sound. They didn't see anything uh, in, 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 eyeball-wise. And he declared unto you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform even ten commandments, and he wrote them upon two tables of stone. Uh, interesting things about the two tables of stone. There are some scholars that believe that all ten commandments were on each stone. It was customary on something that was really important like a covenant to have two copies. And the two tables, not a big deal, but I'm just mentioning this. These are things that come as a surprise. If you've studied this a lot and you stumble on something like this, I hadn't thought about that before. But there's a, there's a whole historical argument that uh, the, 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 the fact that two tables implies the two copies because it's, 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 a, it's an indication of the sacredness of it. But whatever, let's move on. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that ye might do them in the land whither ye go over to possess it. Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves. For ye saw no manner of similitude in the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Lest ye corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image, the similitude of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any beast that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged fowl that flieth in the air, the likeness of anything that creepeth on the ground, or the likeness of any fish that is in the waters beneath the earth. And uh, so uh, Moses is spelling out the significance of this experience at Horeb. That they didn't, they didn't, God didn't, didn't want him represented. He doesn't, he's not saying don't make any images at all. He's saying don't represent God by any of these images. And because uh, uh, the, all the religions of the ancient world, we worshipped all kinds of, of uh, idols and all kinds of shapes. Israel was never to limit God in the, in, in the conceptions of these uh, things. that uh, It would make them corrupt. It's interesting, the scripture teaches us you become like the things you worship. If you worship the world, the world is harsh, materialistic. If you worship the world, you'll become harsh, materialistic. Um, if you worship idols of wood, stone, whatever, you will become like that. We become like the gods we worship. That's another reason you shouldn't worship them, but you should worship Christ. The more you worship Christ, the more you become like him. Basic, basic dynamic. Let's move on. Lest thou lift up thine eyes into heaven when thou seest the sun and the moon and the stars, even all the host of heaven, shouldst be driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord thy God hath divided into all the nations under the whole heaven. See, you're supposed to re- renounce all forms of idolatry. They came out of Egypt, where all these things were very prevalent in Egypt, of course. And uh, the fact that Israel was taken out of Egypt is mentioned about 20 times in the book of Deuteronomy. 
But in Egypt, uh, Israel is likened like being in a smelting furnace to, to remove all the impurities is the idea and uh, to be God's unique possession. But the Lord hath taken you and hath brought you forth out of the iron furnace, even out of Egypt, to be unto him a people of inheritance as ye are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me for your sakes and swear that I should not go over Jordan, that I should not go in unto that good land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. But I must die in this land. I must not go over Jordan. But ye shall go over and possess that good land. It's interesting that these judgments even apply to Moses. Interesting. He knew he would not make it. What he's also saying is he won't be there to enforce their staying away from idolatry, but God will be. God will enforce it. Take heed unto yourselves, lest ye forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make you a graven image or a likeness of anything which the Lord thy God hath forbidden thee. For the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. When thou shalt beget children and children's children, ye shall have remained long in the land, and shall corrupt yourselves, and make a graven image or likeness of anything, shall do evil in the sight of the Lord thy God, to provoke him to anger. It's a strong warning coming here. And uh, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that ye shall soon utterly perish from off the land whereunto ye go over Jordan to possess it. Ye shall not prolong your days upon it, but shall utterly be destroyed. And the Lord shall scatter you among the nations, and ye shall be left few in number among the heathen, whither the Lord shall send you. There shall, be, there shall ye serve gods, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, where, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But if from thence thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt find him, if thou seek him with all thy heart and with all thy soul. When thou art in tribulation and all these things are come upon thee even in the latter days, if thou turn to the Lord thy God and shalt be obedient to his voice. See, by the way, the latter days, you see, he's, uh, that, that, that can uh, uh, refer to any time after the initial dispersions. But their ultimate reference is the, is the time when the Lord Jesus will return to the earth to establish his thousand-year kingdom. And it may shock you to realize that even Isaiah 53, that whole passage, is actually prophetic and hasn't been fulfilled yet. Yes, it alludes to the cross, but what's really describing is the reaction of Israel when they finally wake up and discover that at the end of the tribulation. So there's a lot to, to, to realize. That there's a lot of uh, prophetic implication then. And uh, when thou art, art in tribulation, all these things are come upon thee, even in the latter days. If thou turn to the Lord thy God, and shall be obedient to his voice. And by the way, that's what Hosea 5.15 talks about. Hosea 5.15. God says, Jesus says, I will return to my place. In order to return, he must have left it. Until they acknowledge their offense, and in their affliction they will seek me earnestly. The Lord thy God is a merciful God. He will not forsake thee, neither destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers, which he swear unto them. See, Israel's final return to the Savior will not be to any goodness of human hearts, but rather to their merciful God. God, it'll always, it's always to God's credit. And the Hebrew word translated merciful, it's rahum, refers to the tender compassion of a mother towards her helpless infant, is the, is the, is the rhetorical device here. So even if Israel forgets her God, he will not abandon his morally helpless children because he has the tender compassion of a mother and because uh, he has made an inviolable covenant. The fact that the covenant is inviolable is important. Genesis 15, 17, 26, 28, and 35. Those chapters should be under your command. 
They're critical to understand today. You won't understand the daily paper unless you really understand the significance that that land has been promised by us, uh, a, uh, by God's own oath. Moving on. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before thee since the day that God created man upon the earth, and ask for from, one, from the one side of heaven unto the other, whether there hath been any such thing as this great thing, or hath been heard like it. Did ever people hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of fire as thou hadst heard and live? It's rhetorical, of course. Of course not. Or God has said to go and take him a nation from the midst of another nation by temptations, by signs, by wonders, and by war, and by a mighty hand, and by a stretched out arm, and by great terrors, according to all the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. See, the true origin of the redemption of Israel out of Egypt is not open to other, variations, other discussions. People may try, but they don't make sense. All these things, the voice of God, the miraculous signs and wonders, all these deeds, the plagues, the pillar of fire, the parting Red Sea, the manna, all that. It's clear that it was God who redeemed the Israelites, not some shrewd stratagem on their part, or not some compassion on the part of Pharaoh. No, it was God. Uh, I, I often say God showing off. I don't want to sound irreverent, but that's, it's almost as if he was, he was uh, setting the stage to demonstrate just how powerful he is and how, he's, how committed he is to these people. And uh, so it was, it was a deliberate show of strength by the creator of the universe. Moses continued, And unto thee it was showed, and that thou mightest know that the Lord, he is God. There is none else beside him. Out of heaven he made thee to hear his voice, that he might instruct thee. And upon the earth he showed thee his great fire, and thou heardest his words out of the midst of fire. And uh, so the purpose of this whole miraculous deliverance is to uh, show Israel not, not uh, an issue of intellect, but their experience that God is alone. And uh, this awesome voice and these, uh, these uh, uh, demonstrations were intended to not just instruct their minds, but rather to instill a discipline of a moral nature. There's a big difference between intellectual assent and a wholehearted volition, uh, a, 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 a commitment. And that's what he's after here, a spirit of submission. And that's not just an intellectual thing. Because he loved thy fathers, therefore he chose their seed after them and brought thee out in his sight with his mighty power out of Egypt to drive out nations from before thee, greater and mightier than thou art, to bring thee in and give thee their land for an inheritance as it is this day. So this is uh, because, he, because of God's love for them. Know therefore this day and consider it thine heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and upon the earth beneath. There is none else. Thou shalt keep therefore his statutes and his commandments, which I command thee this day, that it may go well with thee and with thy children after thee, that thou mayest prolong thy days upon the earth, which the Lord thy God giveth thee forever. Forever. That must mean just to the close of the Old Testament, the beginning of the new. No, 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 no. Forever. Forever. And uh, so, this, that it may go well with thee. That's mentioned eight times in this book. And again, in emphasizing the motive for obedience. Then Moses severed three cities on this side of Jordan towards the sun rising, that the slayer might flee. He's talking about the cities of refuge here. Um, slayer might be thither, with, uh, uh, which should kill his neighbor unawares, and hated him not in times past, that the fleeing 
into one of these cities he might live, namely Bezer in the wilderness and the plain of the country of the Reubenites and Ramoth in Gilead of the Gadites and Golan in Bashan of the Manassites. These are three. There were six cities of refuge, three east of the Jordan, three west of the Jordan. And he's recounting that here. And uh, these will be discussed later in Deuteronomy anyway. This is the law which Moses set before the children of Israel. These are the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments which Moses spake unto the children of Israel after they came forth out of Egypt. On this side of the Jordan in the valley over against Beth Beth Beor in the land of Sam, the king of Amorites who dwelt in Heshbon, whom Moses and the children of Israel smote after they were come forth out of Egypt. And they possessed his land in the land of Og, the king of Bashan, the two kings of the Amorites which were on this side of the Jordan toward the sun rising. All this is summarizing. This is all east of the Jordan. We're not into the conquest yet. Joshua will take care of that. And from Aror, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, even to the Mount Sion, which is in Hermon, and all the plain on this side of the Jordan, eastward, even unto the sea of the plain, under the springs of Pisgah. And we have made it a little early by zipping through. But uh, next time we'll be going at about, roughly about two chapters a night, or in a session, I should say, in two sessions next Tuesday. We will be here next Tuesday. Covet your prayers. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Father, we we're just awed at the extremes that you've gone to to provide for your people. As we watch the extremes you went to for your people Israel, we do pray, Father, that you would make us ever more mindful of the extremes you've gone to on our behalf. That you've loved us so much that you've also with a strong hand provided deliverance in Christ for each of us. Oh, Father, we do pray that you would guide us. We, we, we seek clarity, Father. We envy the clarity that they had of communication. And yet, Father, we would pray that you would have your will fulfilled in every life in this room and in the hearing of this voice. We pray that through your Holy Spirit you would illuminate that path before us, that we might each know exactly what it is you would have of each of us in obedience to your word. And while we celebrate the freedom and the liberty we have in Christ, we also, Father, seek to be obedient to his word. Help us, Father, to be obedient, that we too might have life, that we might have a life more abundantly. Help us to understand, Father, on the one hand, the freedom we have in Christ, on the other hand, the need to be obedient to your word. We do pray, Father, that you would help each of us to grow in grace the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, that, we'd have, that you would help each of us to be more fruitful stewards of the opportunities that you put before us. Help us to be prepared. Help us to be bold. And help us to persevere, Father, that we might bear fruit for your kingdom as we commit ourselves this night into your hands without any reservation. And we do so in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.